grab this real quick. I wanted to uh, start out this morning by uh, letting you know of this uh, incredible opportunity that we have here at the church and, and really kind of answered prayer. Um, if you guys remember correctly, uh, several months ago, we talked about what it would be like to partner with the middle school here in Wadsworth. It's a whole idea of kind of dreaming and thinking and praying, go, God, what does it look like to serve and to minister our schools? And specifically, the door was opened up with the junior high. And I just wanted to kind of let you guys in on something. You might have seen it in the need to know, but about 12 days ago, the guidance counselor from the school actually called me in the evening and said that uh, they were looking for at least 10 adults, men and women, who were compassionate and positive to help out with their mentoring program that they're starting up. Amazing. That's a God thing. So basically, I'm throwing that out there to you guys. We need at least 10 men and women. Um, you would need to be available depending on your work schedule, volunteering, and everything else. It's going to be on Wednesdays, just two Wednesdays a month. It's going to be from a, a 10.50 to 11.15, I believe, so it's about 25 minutes. There's going to be a training in January, and then you'll be paired up with your 7th or 8th grader. And then the days are already set. We're going to have an informational meeting actually on November the 9th at 7 o'clock, if you want to put that on your calendar if you're interested, November the 9th at 7 o'clock, Fellowship Hall, quick informational meeting to kind of share a little bit more about the mentoring program as well as what our expectations would be as a church as we go to serve and minister within a public school setting. So it's just incredible um, what God may be doing uh, in opening this up. So we hope that you'll join us. Um, I'm already in, so we technically need nine. And uh, Beth Falkenberg's already in, so I guess technically we need eight. They'll, they'll take more than that, but she really wanted to start small and see how it works. So if we have more, uh, we may be able to really surprise her and do some amazing things for God. Uh, so really cool stuff. All right, this morning we're going to continue on our study in Joshua. We're going to look at Joshua chapter 5. We're actually going to skip over chapter 3, chapter 4, most of chapter 5. We're not going to skip it over totally. Pastor Scott's going to come through, and um, he's going to speak on that in the coming weeks. But for this morning, that's where we're going to land, chapter 5, Joshua chapter 5, 13 through 15. If you're here visiting with us this morning, maybe you don't have a Bible, there might be one close to you uh, underneath one of the seats in front of you. And if that's the case and you're not real familiar with the Bible, uh, this passage is going to be found in, um, on page 211. 211. So if you want to go there, also just to kind of give you the heads up, depending on how familiar you are with the Bible, we'll be reading, I'll be reading out a different translation than the one you would be using, so I don't want you to think what in the world is going on. Um, the words are a little bit different, um, but the message, the message is the same. All right, so let's start off this morning imagining with me, okay? Let's imagine with me to put ourselves in the story of Joshua, Let's just kind of sit and place us right in this story. Because I think oftentimes what ends up happening is there, there's a danger that when we come into times like this, we hope the speaker is going to make the passage come alive. We hope that, you know, whoever it is that's going to be up there is going to say something that's just going to make that pa passage just kind of pop off the page. And sometimes we come in too and we look at the passages and we say, we say hey, you know, these, these are really a bunch of words. Yeah, they're from God, but just kind of give me the application so I know what to do with them in my life. And what I want you to try to do this morning, to kind of wonder with me, imagine with me, put yourself in the story, just like in a good movie, just like in a good book, we do it all the time, and get into God's word. Sometimes I think we miss part of what God wants to be doing in our lives because we don't get 
right in to the passage. So to do that, let's back up just a little bit. Uh, Joshua chapter 1, Scott and uh, Sean, I believe, spoke on that. It had been a couple weeks ago. So this is church participation. Why don't you throw out some of the things that we learned about the story of Joshua in chapter 1? You can cheat and go back there if you want. You can grab your notes. It's totally fine. What were some of the things that we learned about? Just throw them out. Oh, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I'm getting old, and that was overwhelming. Okay, he stayed in the presence of God, right? In fact, he told Joshua, he basically said, look, if you stay here and you follow me and you follow my commands, you're going to be prosperous and you're going to have good success. Absolutely. What else? Go ahead. Okay, right. We know that Joshua was picked, right? Basically, it says Moses died, Joshua's in. Okay, good. What else? Okay, all right, and Rahab, the whole idea of, ooh, what are we doing with this? God says, but let's send the spies in anyway. Okay, good. Right, not just once, right? There's this theme, and then he also used, used the, uh, the tribes as well to say at the very end of that, to be strong and to be courageous. I think it's used three times in chapter one. In fact, he says very courageous, right? Be strong and very courageous at one point. Okay, right, right, Joshua. Joshua was one of two that actually were there at the original that got to go in because everybody else died off. Okay, God uses unusual tools. That's right, the prostitute, right? The spies go in, right? Figure out what's going on, go back and report to Joshua. Anything else? About the story? whole idea, remember he told, it's the whole idea that God would never leave him, right? It wasn't just following commandments. He's like, I'm not going to leave you. You don't need to be afraid. What about the whole idea of he said, look, he used, he used tenses like the land is given to you. Isn't that amazing? He didn't say go in and you're going to, you know, you're going to take the land. I mean, he was using things like the land's already given to you. This is a done deal. This is already taken care of, right? And in chapter two at the end, it's interesting uh, chapter 2, verse 24, when the spies come back, it says, And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants in the land melt away because of us. You get in this picture? God's going, look, I'm for you. This is a done deal. You don't need to fear. Be strong. Be courageous. I'm not going anywhere. People are scared to death. This is all going to happen. And then, even though we're skipping over chapter 3 and chapter 4, I want you to realize this story kind of goes, goes on. And Scott's going to, like I said, come back to this. But they're at the Jordan River, right? And we learned, I think Sean was talking about, that the, the, the river would have been flooded at that time during that season. So as, as you read ahead, and, and, and Scott will share more on this, but it's the whole idea of, man, when they made it to the Jordan River, I believe that it's in chapter 3, God actually parts the waters, they walk across on dry land. Wow, right? It happens again. 
Then not only that, he actually then has them and prepares them to go into the promised land. So all of those things are happening, and we jump into this story right here. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. I want you to picture this, okay? Again, go into this story. Put yourself there. All this stuff has happened. Here is Joshua. The Jordan River is behind him flooded again. His people are on the other side. He stands here. Jericho is up in front of him. We also find really in Jericho chapter 6, I forgot to say this in verse 1, that basically the people are scared to death. No one's going in and no one's going out. And this is where we find Joshua. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you so much for true stories, for your word, God. Just stories that, that you bring to life. And, and dear Heavenly Father, we pray that, that this morning that your presence would continue to just manifest itself, that the Spirit would, we know that he's here, that we would sense it, that you would perform the miracle again of making your word come alive, the miracle of changing hearts and changing minds. God, we know that that is your deal. And we ask that you would move in a powerful way. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so as we travel along, we're gonna continue in this storyline. Not only that, but we're gonna identify who the commander is, and then we're gonna talk about what side that he's on, ultimately the danger of getting it wrong, and at the end, how do we avoid that danger? So that's kind of the map that we're gonna go with this morning. If we've got enough time to do that, that's the direction at least that we're gonna head. So let's just kind of run right into this, right? Joshua chapter five, we already took a look at this and let's start with when Joshua was by Jericho. Can you see that in your mind? Joshua is by Jericho. Now it doesn't necessarily say what he's doing there, but I had these questions when I looked at it. I could, I could see Joshua, I could see him away from his camp. It's interesting that when I, I did some studies on it, there were a lot of other commentators that, that felt the same way I did. So I feel like I'm kind of on comfortable ground here. It's nothing new. But you sit there and you look and you go, Joshua was away. So there was a good chance that the Israelites were behind him, right? Jericho's in front of him and he's out. We know Joshua is, is a leader, he's, he's a commander, he's a spy, he's done all of those things and all of those things are probably wrapped up as he's walking around and he could be looking at Jericho going, wow, that's a fortified city, wow, that's a big city. There's no one going in, no one going out, how are we gonna do this? Looking at what he has, looking at what they have, thinking about the promises, all the stuff that God has, has told him, all the things that God has given him and he's sitting there and he's walking around and we follow the path passage and it says, and he lift up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. 
So can you picture this? Joshua's there. Maybe he's praying. Maybe he's meditating. Whatever the deal is, his eyes are down. And somehow this mysterious figure shows up, takes him by surprise. He looks up and goes, wow, there is a guy standing there. But it's not just a guy standing there, right? He's standing there with a sword drawn. Now, a sword being drawn has the idea that this guy's ready for battle. He's, he's ready to go in. It's put me in, coach. I'm ready to fight somebody. That could be a little startling. If that's you, if you're there and you're Joshua, how do you respond to that? Right? Somehow this guy sneaks up on you. You look. There he is. He's standing there. You don't know who he is. His sword is drawn. Right? What do you do? Maybe some of us would wet ourselves, start screaming, and run away, right? Some of us might do that. Some of us might treat it like, you know, those nasty dogs that you run into sometimes where you're like, down boy, it's okay, all right, and you're looking behind like, where's my reinforcements? Uh, Okay, we got it, we got to come in. And maybe some of you guys would be just like Joshua. Look what Joshua does. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? See, Joshua went right in. He was strong. He was courageous. He went to this guy. I don't know how close he got to him, but he basically said, are you for us or are you against us? That seems like a great question on the surface. It really does because depending on what this guy says, what this figure says, would depend on what he does next, right? Isn't that important information to have? If he says, I'm for you, then he's going, put the sword away right? I'm leading this thing. I haven't asked anybody to go into battle yet. What are you doing away from the camp? Or if it's an adversary, then he's like, I got to set myself. It's time to go. It's time to fight. So it seems like a great question up front. But look at what happens. It says, he went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, or basically the commander said, no. Guys, are you picturing this? This is kind of the the climax of the story right now, right? Mysterious figure shows up just on the scene. Joshua doesn't know who he is, says, are you for us? Are you against us? And he says, no. That's not really the answer Joshua was looking for, right? It's not a yes, no question. Are you for us or are you against us? Are you friend? Are you foe? And the commander says, no. He says, no. So who is he? Whose side is he on? And I believe that by his response and Joshua's response, it gives us a clue on who this commander may be. And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. So we know that he's a commander, right? He's over something. What's he over? He's over the army of the Lord. And then we look and we see that Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. Fell to his face and worshiped. Now Joshua followed God, right? Would he have fallen to worship a human being? He would not, right? That would not have happened. Joshua wouldn't have looked and said, oh, it's a man. He's got a sword. I'm going to bow down to him. It says that he worshiped. Joshua would never have done that. 
The other thing that I think is important here too is, is Joshua, it says, fell on his face, the earth, and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And then it goes on, and we're going to dissect this in a little bit, but it talks about him being on holy ground, right? Actually, I should back up. We know that it's not a man. Let's, let's address the idea of maybe it's an angel, right? Would Joshua have worshipped an angel? We know in Revelations, I believe it's in chapter 19 and chapter 22, that John, who's getting the vision and telling him what he needs to write in the book of Revelations, we know that on two occasions, John tries to drop down and worship the angel. And the angel goes, "Uh uh-uh. Twice he's rebuked. He says, no, you're supposed to worship the living God. That's it. So simplistically, I look at this thing and I go, wow, who is this mystery person. It's not a man because he was worshipped. It's not an angel because Joshua worshipped him. So who would it be? Who would it be? And then to go on even further, what does it say? It says, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you stand is what? Holy. Who makes things holy? Is it the location? Is it because he's just on that plot of land? No, it's God's presence that makes things holy. Maybe this rings a bell. Exodus chapter 3, verses 2 through 4, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Remember this story? Does this sound familiar to what we just read? And Moses said, I will turn aside and see the great sight, why the bush is not burning. Okay, strange man. Moses got a bush. Said, do not, God called to him out of the bush, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Some commentators would say this was Joshua's Moses moment. This is where Joshua comes face to face. I believe that this individual right here is the pre-incarnate Christ. Christ has not come yet incarnate, right? He hasn't come down to take on. God hasn't took on a flesh and blood at this time. But Jesus in the Old Testament does show up. I believe that it's Christ who's standing there. So there's the who. Now let's talk about whose side he is on. Because remember, he says, he basically says no. Since Joshua took him as a mere man, Joshua was asking the wrong question, right? If he's a mere man, it's kind of like, are you loyal to me or are you loyal to them? But he realizes it's the wrong question because of the commander's response. And then we see how he responds to that response. The commander is basically saying, look, I am not for Israel and I am not for the Canaanites, okay? It's not the whole idea that I am loyal to the Israelites. The idea is, is the Israelites loyal to me? Does that make sense? It's that sudden switch. So often, and this is what we're gonna talk about this morning, so often we wanna, instead of going, am I on God's side, we wanna sit there and say, is God on our side? And God's here to set the record straight with Joshua. He says, look, he goes, I am not on your side or the Canaanite side. I am on God's side. I am on my side. And I love that if you sit there and you look at this and go, no, basically I'm on, I'm on God's side. I'm here with the uh, army of the heavenly host. Now I have come. Do you get that in the story? That's amazing. You talk about power and glory. 
amazing. Tony Evans talking about this, he says, the commander did not come to take sides, he came to take over. Came to take over. Commentator by the name of uh, James Boyce said this, says, isn't it interesting that he responds this way, speaking of the commander. Obviously, he came to fight in this battle, and it was to fight against the people in the land, the first target, Jericho. But he doesn't say, well, I'm on your side. Israel is taking this land. No, I'm here to command the Lord's army. The point of the exchange seems to be that it was not for Joshua to claim the allegiance of God for his cause. However, right it was, but rather for God to claim Joshua. The two would fight together, but Joshua would be following the commander of the armies of the Lord in his cause and battles rather than being the other way around. It was all God. Something else that I saw as I was studying this, this is actually from Bible.org on a... um, on an article with the captain of the Lord's army. The person writes this, we tend to approach our battles and causes backwards. We turn things all around and try to marshal God to support us rather than to submit and follow him. Certainly the battle was a joint venture. God and the people of Israel under Joshua's leadership as appointed by the Lord. But Joshua, as with all of us in the army of the king, must be following the Lord, submitting to his authority, taking our orders from him, resting the battle in his hands because we realize it is really his battle as the supreme commander. In this passage, we find this incredible truth that God is not ultimately on anyone's side. He is on his side. He's not looking for, um, he's not looking to join a battle. He's looking to find out who's gonna join his battle, who's gonna join his story, who's gonna be in it for his glory. He is over all things. He's over all things. Have to speed this up a little bit. And I got this at a high level. I really did. I'm going, I get this. God is for his glory. Not a stretch. He doesn't share that with anyone. He's in control. I get that. But it was a high level. And as I continued to study this and it got down to more of the practical, I was really convicted in some ways that I think I've been doing some of the same things. Instead of just basically going, am I on God's side? I looked and I said, is God on my side or is God on their side? And there's a real danger when we get this wrong. We're not only sinning against God, but there is this collateral damage as well regarding our witness in the gospel. Here's a couple of examples of what I mean. Let's take sports, for example, right? What do we see athletes doing all the time? They score and it's like that. Interviews, I just want to thank God, right? For giving me this ability and helping us come through tonight and we want. And on the surface, a lot of times that could look good, especially if it's a Christian saying that, right? Giving God honor and glory for that win. But here's that subtle shift. Is God is for you, then is he against the, lo- or is he against the loser? Is he for the loser? God wanted you to have a good game, but them not to have a good game? See, what happens when it shifts where it's all of a sudden is God on our side? It pollutes everything. Maybe you remember the exchange uh, between Arian Rogers or Arian, (laughs) Aaron Rogers. (laughs) Arian Rogers, that might be his kid, I don't know. Aaron Rogers, I like Arian better. All right, so Aaron Rogers, right? And Russell Wilson, do you guys remember this? 
maybe some of you, right? The two quarterbacks, the NFC championship game. Um, You've got uh, Russell Wilson. He's all emotional afterwards. Seahawks should not have won that game. They came through at the end, and he gives God credit for it. He basically goes on, he says, that's God setting it up to make it so dramatic, so so rewarding, so special, he said after the win. Rodgers didn't like that. He took exception to that, probably because he's super competitive, okay? The other thing, too, is, is basically Russell's going, God wanted the Seahawks to win. He was for the Seahawks. That means he's not for the Packers. He said this in response to that on his radio show. I don't think God cares a whole lot about outcome, Rogers said. He cares about the people involved, but I don't think he's a big football fan. <laughs> but it didn't stop there because we know in September the Packers got the Seahawks. For those of you that follow sports, Aaron, Aaron, I did it again, Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers was asked a question, and this is how he responded. And then getting help from God, I think God was a Packers fan tonight, so he was taking care of us. See what happens? The division, the spite, the attacking, when all of a sudden we take God and we put him on our stuff instead of making sure that God is about his stuff and that we're also about God's stuff. On the political level, political level, I don't even know if I need to go there. <laughs> right? For the sake of time, maybe I don't. But there's people in here that believe you can't be a Democrat and be a Christian. There's some in here that believe you can't be a Republican and be a Christian. And then there's a Tea Party going, you're both going to hell. We're the party. Right? God has stamped it. Tony Evans speaking on this. I love it. He said, the risen Christ neither rides a donkey or an elephant. Just saying. This subtle change from us being for God to God being for us causes division and hate being thrown between both sides, right? Even for professing Christians. And it's not just in Washington, it's also in the church. Instead of having these healthy debates and trying to understand each other, we protect our parties and we look down on others that believe differently than us, which is not Christ-like at all. In fact, in 1 Timothy 2, we're supposed to pray for our leaders. In Romans 13, 1, it talks about submitting ourselves to leaders that God has placed in authority. What about at a national level, right? 9-11, 9-11, it was about God on our side. The reason it was about God is on our side is there wasn't a huge change in America. If it was we needed to be on God's side, there would have been repentance, there would have been confession, right? We would have come to church not necessarily looking for somebody to tell me this is going to be okay, but America would have changed. But instead, we needed God to show up for us. We, he, he needed to prove to everyone again that God was on our side. Any Bob Dylan fans in here? One of you. <laughs> so you'll know this, which is good. Bob Dylan and his song, 1963. I had no idea this song existed until I was doing a little studying. I want you to hear this. He says, oh, my name is nothing. My age means less. The country I came from, I call the Midwest. It's taught and I, I taught and brought up there the laws to abide and that the land that I live in has God on its side. Oh, the history books tell it. They tell it so well. The cavalry's charged. The Indians fell. The cavalry's charged. The Indians died 
Oh, the country was young with God on its side. For the sake of time, let me skip to this one. I think this brings up the point. I've learned to hate Russians all through my whole life. If another war starts, it's them we must fight. To hate them and fear them, to run and to hide and accept it all bravely with God on my side. See how dangerous that is? How in the world are we going to reach out and love people that we believe that God is not on their side, that they are an enemy, that God is on our side and they're on the outside? How do we reach out to them? Church, same example, same example. Um, don't have time to go into that, but you do. You see, you see the same thing within churches. I saw the same thing with God's Not Dead. It was real interesting in that pivotal scene where the student stands up to the atheist and has a good argument. The, the theater, just to kind of cut to the chase, the theater I was in, everybody applauded. And I thought to myself, all of a sudden, this movie changed for me because all of a sudden, it was us against them. We forgot who we're fighting against. It was this young man. He stood up to the atheist professor that God can't have anything good for. It's us against them. And boy, he showed them. Yay for us. Because God is on our side. With a God is for me mentality, it means anyone who thinks differently than you, God must be against have you lived long enough to know that God blesses and uses people that are different than you and believe differently than you? What about instead of even people, what about methods and styles? What about passages like Romans 18.31, right, Len? It says, what then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? So, Len, are you saying that that's not true? I'm not saying that's not true. Okay, that is true. It's true in regards to God's will for you. Now get that. Not your will for yourself. Not the whole idea of God's got my back. I can run in and do whatever I want. It's about pursuing him and his will. It's basically saying nothing can go against God and what he wants to do in your life. So it's absolutely true. But oftentimes we hijack, hijack that truth for our causes. Jim Willis commenting on his book does what does it mean to be on God's side, writes this. Abraham Lincoln famously said, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side. Presidents and other politicians usually want to claim that God is on their side, their country side, and even their political policy side. But Lincoln had it right. One of the biggest problems with religion is that people, institutions, and nations, all of our human sides tend to try to claim God's favor. When people are sure they're right, they confidently say that God agrees with them. Claims of divine blessings for human behavior, often brutal behavior, have always undermined the integrity and credibility of religion. The much harder task and the more important one is to ask how to be on God's side. That often means changing our minds and our hearts and taking on a new perspective. The Bible calls this conversion. So how do we fight against that? And we're going to go through these really quick. But how do we fight against this mentality? Because it creeps in with all of us. I know even in my own life, as I look back on some of the things, oh my gosh, I, I fell into that. It's not the whole idea of, of God being on their side. It's about pursuing God and going, God, am I on your side? 
And I believe the answer to this is found in Joshua's response once he realized that this was no man but the pre-incarnate Christ. The first thing, and I'm just going to read through these quickly. We need to see God. We need to see God for who he is. When Joshua's perception was off, so was his stance and his question and his behavior. But when he recognized who was in front of him, everything changed, right? He recognized the commander of the Lord, the commanders of the Lord's army. He recognized the pre-incarnate Christ. He realized Jesus, our Savior, our sanctifier, our healer and coming king. He was pursuing Christ for who he was. I I ended up going to Beulah Beach not too long ago, and I'm getting older, so youth ministry, and what does that look like? And I went up there with my agenda to basically say, okay, God, what does longevity in youth ministry look like? Can I still be a youth pastor at 60? Can I still do it at 70? What in the world does it look like? Give me what I need to do. Give me my spiritual disciplines. Give me the path that I need to be on. And I went up with my agenda, and in a very short period of time, I was right there by Lake Erie. I'm up at Beulah Beach. I'm on aside, the water's lapping, and God whispered into my spirit, then get to know me. Get to know me. Sure, you can pursue and, and, and things that I do for you, and, and sure, you can learn about me because of the things that I do, but what about me for me? May we lift up our eyes as Joshua did and see Christ. May we not only see him, but also meet with him, right? Meet God in this humble submission and worship. That's what Joshua did. It says, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. Outside of Sunday mornings, how are you meeting with the Lord? Do you carve out time to, to meet with him? Do you come to him in, in humble submission? To you? Do you worship outside of Sunday morning? It's what your soul was created for. It's what it thirsts for. Do you pray? Do you hang out with others that would help in your relationship with Christ? Are you in his word Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's a God thing. He does that with his word. He does that by his spirit, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we need to meet with God. We need to see God. We need to meet with God. We need to thirdly ask God what he wants and what he's doing. Joshua does this, right? He says, what does my Lord say to his servants? One sure way to avoid the focus on us and and what we are doing is, is after coming to him, humbly submitting to him, we ask Christ what he is doing. We come to Christ as the commander and ask Christ, what part do I play? What is your will? What are you trying to do? In another commentary on this passage, Um, David Jackman wrote, Joshua's actions and words indicate his total submission to the authority and direction of the commander. Joshua Joshua has all the responsibility of a human leader, but the heavenly warrior has come precisely to direct operations. The question is not whether the Lord is on our side or not, but whether we are submitted to his sovereign rule and authority because he is the Lord of the earth and heaven in whom all power belongs. We need to be much more concerned about his priorities than about our planning, our arranging, our strategies, our orderings, our scaling ladders, and our building of battering rams because they may not be needed. Looking ahead to the Battle of Jericho. So not only do we need to see God and meet with God and ask God, but we need to be obedient to God. At the very end of the verse, what do we see? He was told to take his sandals off because he was on holy ground, and at the very end it says, and Joshua did so. 
Joshua did so. How often do we hear God's commands in our life and we just don't do it? And we really, we need to be honest about that. As a church, we need to be honest to go, yeah, I don't always follow God's commands. There's a problem with that. I need somebody to hold me accountable and pursue what it is that's holding you back. What might God be asking you to take off today? What work does he want to do in your life that requires your surrendering? Maybe God's calling you to surrender your life to him this morning because, see, he fought another battle about 200,000 years ago when he came not pre-incarnate but incarnate. And God came down to basically be our substitute on the cross, live in a perfect life, to die in our place, to do a battle against sin and death, to satisfy God's wrath for the sin in our life. That's what happened. That was the gospel on the cross. And three days later, he rose. He was victorious. And because of that, it's through Christ and Christ alone that that relationship with God can be fixed that we were created for. If that's you this morning, we would love to talk to you further about it, hook you up with somebody and explore that a little bit further. And then I want to end with this. As I was putting together, this came to me. I'm not saying that this is directly from God. It could just be me, but this is to the church. So I just want to read this to you. These words came to mind. It's amazing how practical and applicable that, this, applicable that this series has been considering where we are in the history of freshwater. We continue to grow. We are seeing people set free. We see and sense the Holy Spirit regularly in some really profound ways. We are a church that is alive. We have a great leadership team of staff, elders, ministry leaders. We are looking to hire a new person for worship, which is amazing as a lot of churches are scaling back. We're actually growing. A buzz about the church around town and many people are talking about the new building. Many. Church, can I caution us against the God is on our side mentality? The sinful stance of look at us, look at what we've done, and God must be pleased because look at all he's doing. Our church is better than that church. God, please bless our ministries. Watch out for the trap of asking God to bless what we are doing instead of seeing him for who he is. Coming to him in humble submission and worship. Asking him what his side is and what he is doing so we can join him and then be obedient to his calling on our lives personally and as a church. Whose side are you on? That's the question. And there's only one answer where there's victory and freedom and life and purpose and value and only one answer that ultimately glorifies God and pleases him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, protect us from ourselves. God, I pray that as you have continued to bless us with so much, just like you were blessing Joshua and promising so many things and we've seen answered to prayer, God, I pray that as a church, we wouldn't focus on, on what you're doing only. We wouldn't focus in on what we're doing only. But dear Heavenly Father, we would actually come to you and say, what do you want to do? God, may we be a church that ultimately when we ask the question, are we on God's side? We can together say we are. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.